This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 233, and we're recording on May 26th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Raw Becca Shinsky, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Jen, I don't know where she went. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she went nowhere. She's just taken so some true. time off. Okay, yeah, I figured it was something like that. I just remember on Friday, no, on Thursday, she was like, uh, I forgot that I took next week off. You need to find somebody. <laughs> I think Jen is spending some quality time with her couch and her cats and, you know, just right. letting her brain rest. Great. Well, we're going to talk about books and things. Well, I guess I should. Do people not know who you are? I don't know. I don't know. I've never been on this show before. Is that real? How is that possible? <laughs> maybe one time like years ago. Maybe. I think I might have been yeah. on this once. It's been a long, long time. All right. So for y'all who don't know, Rebecca is my boss <laughs> and also the host of the Book Riot podcast, our big main show with Jeff O'Neill, where they talk about what's happening in the world of books. And it's not gossipy. It sounds gossipy when you say it like that, but it's not gossipy. I mean, occasionally it's a little gossipy. Right. Well, you know, Jeff is a gossip. It's true. He's famous for. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> so go check out that show. And she has agreed to, to help us with this week's questions. Okay, so before we get to it, how the show works. As I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you need one for yourself or for, you know, your book club that's meeting on Zoom, God bless you, or <laughs> for a gift or whatever, you can send those to us. You email them to us at getbooktobookguide.com. You can also drop your questions in the form, which is in the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line. Uh, if you're emailing us, if you're using the form, just put it in big letters in the first line so we'll get to it on time. We might email you back if we've already answered your question on the show or if we are not going to get to it on time. And that is why we ask for your email address. Okay, we have three items of feedback here. Um, one is from Kate, who says, Alicia's partner might want to check out The River by Peter Heller, which is a thriller about two college buddies who go on a canoe trip. Nevada Bar also has a whole series of murder mysteries set in national parks featuring a park ranger named Anna Pigeon. I do not know what the request was that led to this <laughs> feedback, but I'm glad to be here today because this is also my wheelhouse, and I will second <laughs> that emotion for The River. It is excellent. Anna Pigeon! <laughs> If you think I didn't open this agenda last week when you sent it and immediately be like, find and read everything about park ranger Anna Pigeon, you don't know me at all. Yes. The question, Alicia was asking for murder mysteries specifically set in nature mm. or having to do with like farming or not farming. Was it farming or like hiking, outdoorsy stuff? Because her husband is like an outdoors kind of person. So that's what the question was. And now I need to go find out about Anna Pigeon because that's amazing. Can we get a Netflix series about her now that we're I know. Both <laughs> almost done with Sweet Magnolias? I'm ready for something else. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it so much. Also, Nevada Bar is a great name while we're at it. Truly. All right. Uh, different Kate says, for the reader who is looking for an outdoorsman mystery, try the Mike Bowditch series by Paul Doiron. Mm. The first book is The Poacher's Son. 
And then for Audrey, also has answers for Brandon for Outdoor Mystery Request. Michael McGarity uh, wrote the Kevin Kearney series, William Kent's Kruger Cork O'Connor series. That's a mouthful. Kruger Cork O'Connor. Rich Curtin Mystery Series, uh, another vote for the Mike Bowditch series, and CJ Box, who wrote the Joe Pickett series, and yet another vote for Anna Pigeon, who is the clear and obvious <laughs> winner here. What have I been That's doing in my about. life as a like, well-known lover of national parks that no one has told me about Nevada Bar and Anna Pigeon? Well, I think the question here is, if you are a lover of national parks who visits natural national parks a lot, do you really want to read like a whole series of books about people being murdered? <laughs> In them? I don't know. Uh, maybe. I mean, I don't know. You, you do you. I'm not a, like a national parks person. So. I would at least have liked the option. Yeah. I, I was thinking about my my equivalent for, for this and like, I don't know. Would I want to read a bunch of murder mysteries about people dying while they do cross-stitch? I don't, there are a lot of those, though. They don't have great names. <laughs> I was just thinking cross-stitching in your hammock in your backyard. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Although... Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. I was just thinking about the logistics of like holding a hoop while you're in a hammock. It would be hard. Okay, I'm going to read our first question, all of the questions, but first question, and then we will talk about our first sponsor and away we will go. Okay, question one is from Lauren who says, this is one of the first years in my life that I don't have a trip planned because of COVID. I initially intended on vacationing in Greece in April and New York City in June. I was hoping to get some book recommendations to fill the void, one set in each place. I hope you are staying well and safe. Okay, you too, Lauren. Let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. All right, I feel you. We have all, can- both of us mm-hmm. have canceled most of our vacations this year, and it's such a bummer. So I'm going to take Greece, and then Rebecca will talk about a recommendation for New York City. So I picked Honey Olives Octopus by Christopher Backen, which is like not well known enough, and I don't understand why. If you look at it on Goodreads, it's only got like 130 ratings, which is bananas to me. But this is a combination of memoir and food writing, and also like travel literature. So Christopher Backen's a journalist who goes to uh, Greece, and his goal is to find, uh, to like explore the history behind what makes up Greek food. So he spends every chapter, it's like a trip within his trip to Greece, searching for the very best of the following, olives, bread, fish, cheese, beans, wine, meat, and honey. And so he goes to different places throughout the Greek islands trying to find the best examples of those things. So like he travels all the way to Naxos to find the like the best cheese and he goes to Kathira to the like a mountaintop to find the best honey which is made for bees who like only have access to these very specific thyme plants. And it's like hella privileged, like completely pretentious and and so wonderful. <laughs> because this sounds exactly this is the kind of traveling that I really like to do. I go places to eat there. <laughs> and um, that's all he's done. He like spent several weeks hunting down the very best and purest and freshest of these items. So I think that this will really scratch an itch and also inspire you to continue to hang on to those plans. Like you should definitely go back, maybe follow some of his footsteps and it'll give you ideas for like lesser known places, I think, in Greece to visit where you can find, of course, really great food. So that's Honey Olives Octopus by Christopher Backen. I love that perspective of not just using the book to fill the void, but also to like build out and further enrich your future travel plans. That's lovely. You'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. I took New York. You know, I've read a a lot of literary fiction, so I've read a lot of books set in New York, Um, but many of them are depressing. And I had to like consult myself and Jeff, who is a great lover of um, books about young men walking around New York thinking about their lives um, for something that would be good, like for filling the void. I didn't want to send you a depressing New York City book. So I landed on Open City by Teju Cole, which came out several years ago. I remember really, really loving it. I'm hazy on the details now, but it's about a young man. He is from Nigeria, lives in New York. Uh, He's a doctor and he is just walking the streets of New York, like wandering and wondering and thinking about his life and his relationships. He has just recently broken up with a girlfriend. He's thinking about where his future might take him and about the past that brought him to this place. And because he's wandering the streets of New York, he's bumping into people from all different walks of life and all cultures and classes and having this like very authentic, wonderful New York City experience that is allowing him to like be out in public, but alone with himself. And I think that's a profound part of being in a city 
like New York, you know, when New York is functioning the way that it normally does, where it's so full of people and it's so busy and you're never alone, but it allows you to sometimes find that really interesting solitude. There are, as I was saying, like a million books about like young men walking through New York thinking thoughts about their lives, but very few of them are by and about people of color. And Teju Cole um, brings that perspective as well. Um, It's romantic about New York, but also the rose-colored glasses are not super present. You see a lot of the reality of um, living in the city and thinking about the components of identity and race and memory and how the places that we live shape us. Um, And I think it's really lovely. So that's Open City by Teju Cole. All right. Our next question is from Rachel, who says, I'm looking for a sociological-ish slash history-ish slash journalism-ish, that was really hard, nonfiction book based in the American Midwest. I'm trying to curate a list to learn more about the area. I'm not an American myself. So far, I have Negro Land, Janesville, Columbine, The Warmth of Other Suns, Prairie Fires, The Worst Hard Time. It's all very scattered, and I don't mind that. I'm hoping you can help me find more. I had I had to think about this one. I had to have a thing because I don't know what the Midwest is. Like I struggle with this so <laughs> oh, much. My and if friend. you ask any person, I know, but like you ask somebody and you'll get one answer, especially if you talk about Ohio, like, no, it's the Rust Belt. No, it's this. No, that's the Mountain West. Like, oh my God, somebody just show me a map. I cannot figure it out. But I read a lot of reviews of this book, which I have also read myself, and they all said Midwest, so I'm going for it. So I said I picked American Harvest, which is by Marie Mutsuki Mockett. And this is a new book. It came out this year in April. And it is a memoir slash like journalistic look at the Midwest. So Marie has a farm. She owns, she's the owner of this like huge 7,000 acre wheat farm. It's in Nebraska, Midwest question mark. I don't know. Don't at me because it is apparently, but I don't know if that's real because everybody has different opinions. So she owns this giant wheat farm in Nebraska, but she's never lived on it. Like her, she's raised by her, um, her father whose family owns the farm and then also her Japanese mother. They live in San Francisco in California and that's where she has spent her whole life. They go back to the farm during the harvest season to like help, um, but it is mostly run by other people who live in that town, uh, mostly by a farmer named Eric. So as her family like passes away and it becomes more and more apparent that she's going to take on this farm, she has no idea how to farm. And when she goes out there, she feels super weird because she comes from a coastal city, very liberal. She's not white. And then she goes to Nebraska and, you know, it does not meet many people who have her lived experience. But she's also pretty close to these people. Like they have been caretaking her family's land for like 100 years. Um, and she doesn't want to be an absentee farmer who or farm owner who like just never speaks to the people who are the ones maintaining her family's pot. So she decides she's going to go there and like get to know, actually get to know these people who've been taking care of her family's land for all of this time. And so she writes this like really fascinating memoir about being not white, owning this plot of land in Nebraska, which in and of itself is kind of is like strange and unusual. And also talking to these people who are all super conservative, all evangelical Christians who have this like puritanical work ethic and all of just everything about the way that they think and live is the exact opposite of the way that the author thinks and lives. And she really wants to bridge that gap. I feel like the way that you that I'm describing it and also kind of a little bit of the summary feels a bit like let's go to the middle of America and, you know, see how the white people think, you know, like that kind of journalism where people parachute into an area that they're not from and treat everyone there like they're a microscopic specimen. But that's not what's happening here. Like her, she has family roots, even though she did not grow up in this area. And she very much respects like the humanity of these people, even though they are completely different from her and live their lives in ways that she considers to be actively harmful. But of course, they don't think that way. So it's it's interesting in a lot of ways, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're coming at the book from, you get to hear from other people. 
And she is also doing that memoir thing of like, but I'm also here in this wheat field and I don't know what to do with my body. Like, I very much don't know where I'm, but what do I stand here? I don't know. It's just really funny. So that's American Harvest by Marie Mutsuki Mockett. I'm glad to be here for this question because I am from the Midwest, yes. <laughs> from Kansas, which is inarguably the Midwest. Yes. Um, but I think it's a tough question. Or I think part of the reason that you struggle with it, Amanda, is that like Midwest is both a place and a culture. And I think mm-hmm. the culture extends beyond the technical geographic locations of the Midwest. Like Ohio feels very Midwestern, even if it's technically the Rust Belt. Uh, you can at me about that if you want to. Um, so <laughs> I grew up um, in the suburbs outside Kansas City. Um, and now I'm a Southerner. Uh, anyway, this book spoke to a lot of that experience and also to the thing that uh, that you were getting at, Amanda, about especially since the 2016 election, um, people really being fascinated by like, what's going on in the middle of the country? And what do these Midwesterners want? Uh, and so my pick is Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. It's by Sarah Smart. Um, She is a journalist. She became really popular online um, in the aftermath of the 2016 election. This book came out in 2018. And it is a memoir, but written through the lens also of journalism and analysis and cultural commentary. So I think it does a lot of the things that you're looking for it to do. She is a fifth generation Kansan, her family um, were wheat farmers, and she grew up um, in Kansas in the 80s and 90s, uh, having this partially like very idyllic farmland childhood, but also seeing poverty all around her, people who had you know medical conditions that they couldn't afford treatment for, um, very dangerous working conditions, abusive relationships, and that tension between like the promise of the American dream and the reality of all of the struggle involved in trying to reach it and the pain and realizing that it might not be possible or for many people isn't possible. She brings a lot of nuance to the conversation about like, why is the country so divided? And what is really going on in the Midwest by talking about both her personal experience and grounding it in bigger sort of sociological looks at um, really what life is like in that part of the country. Um, And I mean, it's interesting. She grew up just a few hours from where I grew up, but the difference between being in the suburbs outside a city and being like really in farmland, she was west of Wichita, um, is a completely different mode of growing up um, and a completely different kind of exposure to thinking about um, education and entitlement and access, really access and privilege. It's really, really wonderful. Um, She was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Kirkus Prize. It was named a best book of the year on many, many, many lists um, a few years ago when it came out. And I just can't recommend it enough. So that's Heartland by Sarah Smarsh. All right. Our next question is from Ashley, who says, one of my major goals for 2020 is to learn more about history to just generally be a more informed person in the world. However, I don't want to get stuck with something super depressing because daily news notifications already hit that spot. Are there any books about happy periods in history or that at least leave you with vaguely positive feelings? Alrighty, I picked How to Behave Badly in Elizabethan England by my very best friend in life, Ruth Goodman. (laughs) Just kidding, I've never spoken to Ruth Goodman, but I absolutely would. I would totally fangirl all over her if I ever met her. I mean, we've had a good run, so you can have fun with Ruth. (laughs) 
Thank you. I love her so much. I can only have one redhead at a time. And so she has to like get in line. All right. So obviously, as you can get from the title, this takes place during the Elizabethan period in England, which you could argue is not a super happy time. But this book is so funny. And it's very purposefully taking on some of the more lighthearted aspects of Elizabethan culture. How to behave badly, meaning like what behaviors made a person rude and um, what behaviors brought on societies like ire and the ways that you could specifically insult someone to like get at them the mo- in the most effective way. One of my favorite anecdotes that she tells is about um, the different ways that you bow and how some bowing was like designed to be very physically uncomfortable because you were putting yourself in discomfort in order to show respect to whoever you were bowing to. And so there was one instance when the French ambassador really pissed off Queen Elizabeth. And so he bowed to her and she left him in the bow because you could not come out of it until you were excused. (laughs) She left him in that really painful bow for like 20 minutes (laughs) because he annoyed her. And I just love that so much (laughs) that she was like, you know what? You're going to sit like that. You're going to sit like that and think about what you've done. (laughs) Who even knows what he had done? Been French? Like, got away. So you're teaching your kids how to bow now, right? I mean, I'm gonna. And there's also stuff in here about like why quoting Shakespeare was considered really rude and unmannerly and the different ways that um, like using utensils at dinner uh, indicated your your class levels and could, could like adjust your position. How greeting somebody with your hat on or your hat off indicated respect or insult or not. It's just really fascinating and interesting detailed stuff about the, the ways that you could navigate society insulting people or not insulting people, <laughs> like throwing shade Elizabethan style, which is just hilarious and the way that you could refer to people um, like thee or thou and which ones were considered the most respectful or, or, or not of course most of the insults that had to do with insulting women are all about sex and some of them aren't just and not just limited to like loose morals or whatever but like indicating that a woman was really bad at sex was a really popular way to insult her and if you did that enough she could sue you <laughs> like if you indicated that a woman was bad in bed enough times she could take you to court i just love it it's hilarious the ways that like puritanical cultures get get so like huffy about sexual things but then also are really open about them in some ways that make no sense are eternal fascination i have with that so that's how to behave badly in elizabethan england by ruth goodman Well, speaking of puritanical cultures, (laughs) I picked the wordy shipmates by Sarah Vowell. I am not sure that there actually are happy periods in history, at least that get written about. Uh, But I think that a good writer can make anything fun to read about. And the wordy shipmates is Sarah Vowell, um, her look at the Puritans, uh, the, you know, sort of folks who came over on the Mayflower, uh, and who get romanticized quite frequently, but also, but really were like very dramatic and catty and mean and weird to each other. And she takes their journal entries and letters and like town gossip, basically, and uh, like feuds that existed between like Jonathan Winthrop, who famously coined the term city on a hill, uh, and who wrote one of my favorite pieces of writing ever, this uh, completely bananas sermon about uh, how sinners are just like spiders dangling over the pits of hell. Uh, it's just like dramatic in the best possible way, and also very far removed from our cultural experiences um, today. And Sarah Vowell writes about history and like her general approach is to write about history with just a wink and a sparkle in her eye of like, look at this thing. And uh, she takes it seriously, but also makes it fun and funny. She has one of the world's 
most memorable voices, uh, just depending on your preferences, you might love it or you might hate her. Um, but I would heartily recommend trying this out on audiobook because mm-hmm. she is very fun to listen to. And you get to, you know, drive around or walk around your house or whatever and be like, oh, those silly Puritans. Uh, it's just wonderful. So that's the wordy shipmates. All right. Our next question is from Amrita, who is a high school student whose teacher is offering extra credit to kids who get on this show. (laughs) So we've been trying to feature as many of them as we can, even though I guess at this point it doesn't matter. I don't know if grades matter. What matters anymore? Do grades matter now in the time of COVID? Who knows? But we're going to answer it anyway, just in case. Um, So Amrita says, I've never been good at saying exactly what I want. So I promise I'm trying my best. I usually stick to fantasy and fiction, no matter how many times my language arts teachers tell me to branch out. Some of my favorites are Six of Crows, The Naturals, Renegades, and Escape from Eden. I hope that's enough information. That's enough. We got you. I got you. Okay, so I picked His Hideous Heart, uh, which is edited by Dahlia Adler. This is a YA collection of retellings of Edgar Allan Poe's classic stories, updated for modern teen audiences. And I picked this for you because your language arts teacher will be super happy that you're reading something about Poe, because all English people love Poe. It's just (laughs) fact. Hashtag facts. And the stories are like really dark and a lot of them are super gothy and weird. And uh, they a lot of them have, um, just because it's Poe and like you can't escape it, a very Six of Crows kind of tone, like that atmosphere. It's very gothic and a little spooky. Um, like the retelling of The Fall of the House of Usher um, is about, the, in the retelling, it's twins who are hired by this bank, which is the House of Usher, to break in and test their security systems. And the house turns out to be like, not what you think it is, because nothing ever is with Poe. Um, and it's like a heist. Uh, and the retelling of The Telltale Heart is super creepy and is actually like a murder mystery with a serial killer. They're just all really great. And the collection of authors that they've brought together to retell these stories will probably be super familiar to you because you seem to be pretty widely read in YA. So like Rinshu Pecco, Lamar Giles, Tessa Gratton does one, Tiffany D. Jackson does one. And Amanda Lovelace, who's like a really famous poet, does a redo of The Raven uh, with her like blackout poetry that I really love. It's also super queer. Like I love it so much. There's a um, a retelling of one of that. Oh, I don't remember which story it is, but it takes place in the Philippines and it's about a trans character. And the poem Annabelle Lee is retold as a short story about a lesbian teen, a teenage lesbian couple. It's just so lovely. All of the stories are great. And if you like kind of dark twisty YA, which it seems like you do, I think it's to be right up your alley and make sure you tell your teacher you're reading it because you'll get lots of gold stars. So that's His Hideous Heart by Dahlia Adler. I leaned into just read more of what you like. That's okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I had to do some Googling. This is not my wheelhouse, but on the off chance that you have not read this, I'm going to recommend Shatter Me by Tahara Mafee for many reasons, but the first of which is that it's the first of seven books in the series. So if you like it, you have many, many more places to go. Uh, The main character is a girl named Juliet who can touch or who can kill a person simply by touching them. And nobody knows why or how Juliet acquired this power. Uh, Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? What should she do with it? The governing body called the reestablishment sees it as a gift, though, and they think that they can use her because now she can be a weapon. Uh, She's never had to fight for herself like that before. She's never really had to fight for anything. Uh, And then she ends up reuniting with 
the one person that she has ever truly felt cared for by. The one person that she's truly ever felt cared for her. That was an awkward sentence. Uh, (laughs) And it gives her a new perspective and strength and maybe some insight on what to do about this ability that she has. I remember this book being huge a couple of years ago. And so maybe Mm -hmm. it also like surged before you were in your YA reading period. Um, But that is Shatter Me by Tahira Muffy. I love that book. I love it. One of the reasons why I love it is because it has a really problematic romance that uh, that was very controversial. <laughs> and I love that. Like anything that's going to make the YA community angry, I'm probably going to be really into. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. But I loved it. I loved it. And I love who she ends up with. Again, once again, don't at me. That's my story. <laughs> Get your own okay. podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So our, uh, let's take a break for our next sponsor. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul-mouthed, paint-splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, uh, question five is from a lover of whimsy, love that, um, who says, let's see, I love whimsical novels. Some past ones I've enjoyed include The Night Circus and The Starless Sea, The Wayward Children series, and anything by Kelly Link, Strange the Dreamer, and Gods of Jade and Shadow. I'm always looking to expand my TBR with more fun, lighthearted books that still have depth and heart. Okay, I picked The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making by Catherine M. Valenti, which is the first book in a series that I think has five or six books in it at this point. It might be four. Whatever. There's a lot. 
this is maybe a bit out of left field because it is a middle grade series, but I love it so much. It's got a really, really big adult audience who are like dedicated to this series. And I think that it hits a lot of the boxes that you love. You seem to really enjoy fantasy that has a lot of kind of like darker atmospheric sort of magic going on that's like got a message, um, which the Night Circus and the Wayward Children series definitely does. And uh, Strange the Dreamer does too. So the girl who's sick from Navigated Fairyland, et cetera, et cetera, I'm not gonna read the whole thing. It's about a 12 year old girl named September. She lives in Omaha. You don't get the exact time period, but it feels very much like World War II. Like her, she has a pretty normal life. And then her dad goes off to war and her mother has to go work in a factory. Um, so like World War II. And she is bored and has nothing to do. And she's just trying to kind of entertain herself until her father comes home from war. And then one day um, she meets the green wind, like the, the wind who is embodied in the form of like a very dapper man in a green little jacket who invites her to go to fairyland saying that her help is like desperately needed um, in this alternate realm. And so she decides, sure, why not? I got nothing else to do. And no adult is taking care of me, which is always the story in these middle grade novels. And so she goes into fairyland and has a series of really, really excellent magical adventures. Um, she meets the new Marquess who is in charge of fairyland, who's like very kind of a sociopath. Like she's very frightening and fickle and violent, but she's also a child. Like she doesn't seem that much older than September is. And the Marquess sends her on this quest to find this like talisman for her and if september doesn't fulfill it then the marquess is gonna like punish the inhabitants of fairyland and along the way she like teams up with a boy named saturday who was blue um and she also teams up with a wyvern who is half library and so he calls himself a wyverary <laughs> and his name is aethril and i love him so much like his father is a library um i will say that my son Rhett just read the first book and immediately started reading the second the second one and he just loves it. It's so much fun. But it does that kind of very Neil Gaiman-ish thing where Neil Gaiman writes children's books that are purposefully presenting really magical and frightening things to ch to children in order to teach them about strength and resilience um, and bravery, right? And that is what Valenti is doing in this book also. And it's a, it's, a, it's a storytelling mechanism that resonates with readers no matter how old you are, which is, of course, also why adults love Neil Gaiman. I think that's the same reason why adults love this series. So that's The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland and A Ship of Her Own Making by Catherine Valenti. Oh, man, I'm so excited about this question. <laughs> I love A Touch of Whimsy. And the best example that I've read in a long time is a pretty new novel just came out earlier this year. It's called We Ride Upon Sticks by Quan Berry. It's amazing. Uh, it's set in a suburb of Salem, Massachusetts in the late 80s. And it's about a girls field hockey team that are tired of losing. So they make a pact with the devil to secure a winning season. And they do this by writing all of their names in a notebook with Emilio Estevez's face on the cover. <laughs> It is. It's fantastic. It's so much fun. It's narrated in a as a plural narrator. So everything is like we did this and we did that. And it, that mechanism works because the girls are all mentally linked now that they have signed their names in this book and they've made this deal with the devil they start to be able to communicate with each other like hear each other's thoughts and pick up on each other's feelings in a very subtle way um Quan Berry takes this really it's just a really fun storytelling technique like the premise of this is just great right they make a deal with the devil and it's packed with 80s pop culture references um and also a ton of references to the crucible because you're in Salem Massachusetts and they're talking about witchcraft 
draft. Um, but also, like, a couple of the girls on the team are girls of color. One of the members of the team is queer. They don't, because it's the late 80s, have language, really, for talking about this in a nuanced way with each other. You know, like, Tumblr had not yet been invented, and teenagers <laughs> weren't woke and talking about their identities and experiences in that way. But because they're mentally linked with each other, the girls are able to, like, pick up on aspects of each other's experience and understand each other's perspectives in a new way. And there's also really, really sharp social and political commentary about race and especially race and gender, but also some class stuff comes in. Um, And that part was really unexpected. It sort of came in in the second half of the book. And at that point, I was already just having a blast. Like this was going to be one of my favorite books of the year already. But then that added layer of not just a fun story, not just a fun premise executed very well, but also depth and substance and um, a voice from 2020 taking on a story about girls 30 years ago um, and bringing some, giving them some new language and some new voice for um, how to make sense of their world. I just loved it so much. Um, It manages to do substantial and meaningful things while being just a total blast all the way through. Um, And as an example, like one of the girls, as their powers grow, her bangs get bigger and bigger because it's the 80s. And they all refer to her big like wave bang thing in the front as the claw and like the Claw gets its own voice for parts of the book. It's just awesome. Anyway, that's We Ride Upon Sticks. I love that book so much. It's so good. The claw is amazing. And like the weird sock that they tie to their arms oh, right. to indicate that they have taken this path. Yeah. And the one, the one girl who gets the like hickey looking thing on the side of her yeah. neck that's basically like the devil's kiss. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a crucible callback that I remember mm-hmm. from high school. All right. Our next question is from Aaron, who says, I am chronically ill and would love to read more books with characters like me. Recently, I've enjoyed Lost and Wanted and Autobiography of a Face, which were both fantastic. I'm not a huge YA fan, so I tend to stay away from stuff like The Fault in Our Stars or anything exploitive or ableist. Do you have any other recommendations? Okay, I actually just started this book, and I'm about a quarter of the way through, but I think it's really perfect for what you're asking for. It's called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. Yes. (laughs) Rebecca really likes it. Um, I saw Kendra Winchester from Reading Women recommended on Instagram, and I thought it was great for this, so I started reading it for it. So it's by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. And this is a memoir. Elizabeth was uh, picked up some really strange and mysterious infection while she was traveling through Europe, and it made her so ill um, for so long that she ended up bedridden. And she had neurological issues. She had a lot of nerve damage. She couldn't do really simple things like feed herself or walk or even sit up for long periods of time. And this went on for like months. And then she would get better and then relapse. And her doctors were just shruggy emoji, like forever trying this, that and the other thing to figure out what the infection was and what antibiotic would work. And it was just it's just like a medical nightmare. And before that, before she got sick, she was a very active person. Like she went to Europe and was doing this like backpacking through all of these. I think she was in Switzerland when she got sick, backpacking through the Alps and like mountains. And she lives on a farm, was very independent, um, really into nature, loved hiking, like all of that. And then to find herself bedridden for long, long periods of time, totally without mobility, completely disrupted her life. And so one of her friends, she's moved out of her farm and into like a, I think it's an apartment. I don't remember, but she's moved out of her farm into a different living establishment 
moment where she can have help come in. And also her friends come to visit her occasionally. And one of her friends finds a wild snail, like on the side of the road when she's on her way to go visit Elizabeth, picks it up and brings it inside and sets it up next to Elizabeth's bed on a um, bouquet. It's not a bouquet because it's planted, like a thing of wildflowers that's next to Elizabeth's bed. And Elizabeth has nothing else to do but beyond that does not have the energy to do anything else that most of us would do when stuck in bed like binge watching tv or reading a book or whatever she can't handle like the sensory overwhelm of television and she can't hold a book up so she has she's literally cannot do, do anything she's in this bed it's almost like an iron lung and so she starts observing this snail and her life is so quiet and slow now that she can hear it when it's eating and she can watch it as it goes it's like nocturnal route of from living up in the leaves of this plant to coming down the side of the pot. Um, and she thinks about like how it moves. She starts thinking about how it makes decisions and how it's like doing courtship stuff that aren't going to come to anything because it lives on her bedside table. Um, but she becomes really not obsessed, but like a really intense observer of this one little animal. And she uses that to talk about all the ways that her disability has completely changed her life, like going from someone who is very active and doing all the things and who is pursuing all the things we're supposed to pursue as adults to someone who just can't do any of that. And like, what do you do with your values when you have your whole life valued, like having a successful career and like being an independent person to someone who is completely dependent on other people and someone who cannot pursue any kind of career at all. Like, what do you do with your life in like modern Western capitalism when you cannot contribute to capitalism in any kind of way? So she thinks about all of that while watching the snail. And it's just fascinating. So that's The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. Oh, it's such a good one. <laughs> that is, it's nature. such a good book. Uh, okay, my pick is The Two Kinds of Decay by Sarah Manguso. Um, I read this a couple years back, um, and it has stuck with me ever since. Manguso is also a poet, and th that really comes through in the writing. Uh, when she was in her early 20s, she was diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disorder that attacks the coating of, your, uh, of the peripheral nerves and causes numbness followed by paralysis that spreads toward from your extremities in toward the center of the body and then ultimately can result in death. She's so young and this is so rare and like she's still in college when it happens and is just struggling to get her head around it. And um, the book is from I think 8 or 9 years after her diagnosis and she writes about just facing the unpredictability of the disease and understanding like where it could go, but not knowing where it will go for her. Um, multiple attempts at treatment, dealing with watching what happens to other people that she finds community with who have experienced the, this disease or similar ones, and wrestling with depression and addiction. And like she notes, I remember through it, um, as a writer, really wrestling with all of the very like trite and Oh, what is the word I'm looking for? Like kind of stereotypical things that people say about illness um, and wanting to give new language and her own personal language to the experience. Um, it's quiet and 
beautiful. Um, I was Googling reviews as a refresher. And this one from Nick Flynn, I think sums it up really wonderfully, where he says, if art can be described as the paths one takes towards some form of compassion, this distilled and luminous book offers us one such map, an exploration of a body at a particular moment in its history, narrated by an unsparing yet appealing consciousness. The two kinds of decay brings the reader to a place of grace and compassion that is absolutely breathtaking. Um, that was my experience of reading it a couple of years ago. Um, she really works to find compassion for herself and um, for going through something very difficult and trying to allow it to be difficult and also to hold on to who she is um, and to the idea of a future and get her head around what that future might look like. Again, the writing is just gorgeous um, because poet, and I can't recommend that one enough. So it's The Two Kinds of Decay by Sarah Manguso. I love Sarah Manguso. Right? She had that really, she's the one who had that book about journaling, right? Like the memoir about. On meaning or meaning. I'll put it in the show notes because I can't remember now. Ongoingness. Ongoingness. Yes, 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 yes. She's so good at, the, at like snippets. Yeah. And I mean, she's a poet, right? Like you said. So she can condense all these huge, big human emotions into like a line. It's just such, such I don't know, talent. It's real good. All right. Our last question is from Sakshi, who says, I love mysteries, thrillers, or stories that aren't too predictable. And I am a huge sucker for flawed, morally ambiguous central characters that come with heavy baggage. I like sharp objects and just about everything Gillian Flynn has written. And I'm looking for a book that can give me a similar experience, but has an original storyline that won't remind me of anything I've read before. Okay, I went with a new book. It's called Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. This is a trigger warning for suicide. And this came out like two weeks ago. And it was very much, when I read it, I felt like this is the kind of thing that like if Gillian Flynn decided to write a dark academia book, then it would be a lot like this. There's not like murder. It's not like a murder mystery like she's usually writing, but that kind of like weird, everyone's twisted, no one is likable, everyone's the worst kind of a thing in uh, in academia. So Catherine House is about a college called, you guessed it, Catherine House, that's in the middle of rural Pennsylvania. And it's a really progressive liberal arts school. It has a very selective admissions um, process with like eight and nine and 10 hour interviews that you have to do over and over again. And it produces really successful people like Supreme Court justices, presidents, really famous artists, all of these people come out of Catherine House. And one of the um, perks of it is that everything is free. It's so well endowed that tuition, room and board are free. But once you get in, you cannot contact the outside world. So and it's only three years because it's such a rigorous academic process and they have summer semesters. So you're agreeing when you're accepted to go to Catherine House for three years you, ha you can't bring anything with you. You can't bring pictures, music, phone, nothing, clothes, nothing. And you are not allowed to access the outside world at all. There's no TV. There's no radio. There's no internet. There is no letters to or from home. You can earn points eventually that gives you like a phone call to home, but it's like a prison where it's designed to be like where you never have quite enough. So no one has contact with the outside world. And the main character's name is Ines, and you come with her into the school, or, you know, her first day, and you're with her all three years. And through her eyes, you realize that, like, this is not right. Like, nothing that's happening here is normal. Um, the school is very secretive and centered around what they call new material studies, um, which the school's really famous for. Their scientific division discovered a new, like, material called that they're calling plasm that could um, have implications in medicine and and business and uh, building and all of this kind of stuff. And people work really hard to get accepted into that concentration or that major. But the material itself is super weird. The 
people who study it end up kind of kooky and there's something just like super off about it. Um, and Anessa is not a likable person. It turns out as you read it, you start to realize that people are accepted into this school not because they're academically gifted, but because no one will miss them. <laughs> Once they end up, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> once they are, they're all running from something. And she is running from a really complicated, terrible past. Um, she's not likable. Like, you were asking for a morally ambiguous character. This is it. When the book opens, she's severely depressed and, like, cannot care about what's going on around her. But things are so weird in this school. And she starts to make friends. And then things start happening to them. And she kind of has to come out of her, you know, shell or her depressive episodes to figure out what's going on here. It's just bonkers. It's super, super strange. Strange gave me a lot of Gillian Flynn vibes. Like, I don't know who I'm supposed to believe here, you know, the narrator or everyone else or neither or both. Like, it's just bonkers. So that's Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. Whew. All right. I don't know if y'all have recommended this one on the show a bunch, but I'm going with it anyway. It's Penance by Kane Minato. Trigger warnings for violence against women. Kane Minato is a Japanese writer. This is a great psychological thriller that gave me Gillian Flynn vibes, or I think I think these kinds of books have been existing for a long time before Gillian Flynn, but she just like gave us the term now that we have for that vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's about five girls. They're women now, but when they were girls, um, four of them got tricked by a stranger into leaving one of their friends, the fifth girl, with the stranger. Um, and two hours later, that fifth girl, her name was Emily, um, that fifth girl was found murdered. The four remaining girls were never able to like describe that stranger to the police in a way that led to any ability to track them. It becomes a cold case and everyone just assumes like this will never get solved. Uh, but now it is years later and the girl's mother who had cursed the girls that were surviving and vowed that she would make them pay, they would have to pay penance, thus the title of the book, <laughs> is maybe back um, and contacting them. And the book rotates between those girls' voices and flashes from what happened in the past. So you're slowly piecing together what happened, who did it, who might have done it. There are several like possibilities that become, oh, maybe it's not that person, but it could be that person. Um, the girls all have their own secrets and their own worries about that day that they've been carrying with themselves uh, for the last 15 years. And also a look at how that one big event of their childhood shaped each one of them and how they've gone forward from it now 15 years later. It's really dark and twisty. Um, if you like that Gillian Flynn dark and twisty vibe, I think you're going to dig it a lot. Alrighty, that's our show. Jazz hands. Woo! I'm doing it. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, please go leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. Where can the humans find you, Rebecca? Really just on the Instagram also at Rebecca Shinsky. And we will be back next week with Jen for, you know, the normal Jen and Amanda show. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. Have a good one. Bye.